Welcome to the latest episode of Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles. I'm Chris Lay, the Podcast Operations Manager for Lee Enterprises, and along with Nat Cardona, the co-producer and co-host of this show. For this capstone episode, Nat and I are going to be talking about some of our most important takeaways from this first of our series, and we consider the nuances of some of the articles that we looked at, as well as praise the journalistic efforts that went into bringing the story to the masses, not just the first time as it was happening, but also decades later when it was ready to be re-examined. This was the first Crime Beat Chronicle series that Nat and I have worked on together, and as you'll hear, we take a minute to address some of the things that we plan on doing a little differently in future episodes, as well as offer a preview of our next series, which will be centered on a decades-old murder in Buffalo, New York. So make sure that you are subscribed to the show wherever it is you get your podcasts. We're going to have links in the show notes to loads of articles that we read from in the past, and even more that we didn't read from but we used for research. A tremendous thank you to the staff of the Greensboro News and Record, especially managing editor Jennifer Fernandez and reporters Nancy McLaughlin and Lorraine Ahern. It has been an absolute pleasure working with Nat on this show, and we are both so excited to share more fascinating true crime stories in the future. We really hope that you've gotten something interesting or thought-provoking from this show, either this series or any of the previous ones, And if you have, we encourage you to support whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. And now, after a short break, Nat and I will be back with our capstone of Fearfully, She Walked the Streets. I think, yeah, one of the main... I mean, there's a lot of takeaways that I had from this. And I think one of the main ones was just how how much of a fine line it is to to write about this stuff. And there's certainly aspects of it from the 90s that might not have aged well in the the way that some of the victims were, you know, portrayed. I mean, like there's it goes back and forth, but I mean, it's difficult to avoid the stigma of the fact that these were addicts and prostitutes and um but also human beings and it's hard to i think kind of escape all of that whereas alston i don't know he was a bad dude but you know didn't you don't say yeah right none of the things that that he had done up to that warranted the the kind of red flags that go up you know for someone and it's just a at least that we know of right well yeah yeah i mean digging a little bit into that i mean i don't know how many serial killers do have the quintessential trademarks of killing cats when they're 10 years old and you know hating their mother and being an incel or whatever the word is so it's hard i mean i don't say really you know when you've got the the quotes you know about him you know robert was such a sweet child he was always alone uh you know he went to work and that's about it i i don't know in the the notes that i had to you it was he just seemed like a real dull kid you know c minus sort of 
person. I don't know if that's like too harsh or judgmental on. Well, I think you can be wildly judgmental about well, this guy, you know, and so. Yeah. But, I think it's, you know, like more judging the the personality as as it was presented by the people around him before it was known the, you know, horrible things that he was doing. Well, I think it just goes to say this guy was just uh, a nobody in the background going through the motions, not really spectacular by any means. And that's kind of how his whole game of killing was perpetuated because he was in the background killing people who were in the background um and that's that's simply how it worked out i think uh, one of the notes you wrote down in me and i hopefully i didn't mistake you on this but we probably could have talked about the victims much more but i think it was lorraine that was that shed light on that stuff is that unfortunately it's hard to keep up with the families of some of those people because of the nature of how they the, the victims were living their lives and stuff like that and people move away and that was the pre-internet age and yada yada and so i i guess maybe i'm giving ourselves an excuse and how we didn't dig more into them um but on the flip side the reason i'm just going off of that piggybacking off of that is that you you tossed out those quotes of he was a relatively normal guy he was pretty quiet kind of smart you know these things about him these details it's it's annoying it, it, it's it's okay just just bear with me here it frustrates myself that i would be more interested in him or a killer or a serial killer in general more than the lives of the people the lives that he took from his victims because it just comes down to what was in this person's mind? What possesses a person? How does somebody end up like him doing these horrible things? So it is interesting when you do have these quotes and you, it's kind of part of the, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Mystique. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, it's part of the, the baggage that comes with, a topic like this or a guy like this is because everyone's trying to figure out how how did this guy get there right um and that's what's intriguing and there is the mystique around it because what it really tells you is that anyone around you could surprise you and be a horrible horrible person doing these very terrible things but I guess that's just something that always drives myself crazy. Like even with this, the Idaho thing going on right now in the suspect that they have in custody was in my car ride. And I was immediately, I've been following the case for more than a month and a half, but I was immediately down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out who this son of a gun is and his backstory. And then I realized, wow, I really don't, I didn't pay much mind to the four victims. I know, I know it was the three girls. And the one guy, and I know their ages, and I know they were students, and I know all that. But to just jump in, we are we're recording this on the day uh, that oh yeah was it Brian Christopher Koberger yeah, uh, yeah. was you know arrested. That's why yeah. it's 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 super fresh on it's super on, fresh. On, on your mind, and it's also yeah. the fact that that's happening in uh, you know a region that is super close to you know a couple of leader prize on papers. So where I'm sure that we'll let this air out a little bit before we dive in but we're, we we have a pin in this one 
<laughs> you have to, to, to <laughs> yeah, revisit. Well, right. No, I know. Oh, it's just, it's just, it's the nature of it. And I'm sure many people are like myself in that way. It's just the, the long and short of it is just kind of, it's really hard not to rubberneck and want to know more about the bad guy as opposed to more about the victims, because that's just me. On the one hand, you are right that it could be people can surprise you. And there is a certain aspect of both that case and the Alston case where you're just confronted with the fact that chaos is always possible. Like there's, you know, what is it that's keeping all of us from, you know, doing bad things to each other? We all have, you know, certain boundaries that are... You know, once you even, you know, maybe contemplate something, you have a secondary thought of like, well, that's, I can't even like think about that. That's not, you know, whatever. Whereas you're looking at people, I mean, it's extraordinary in in a pretty loose definition of the word maybe, but the act of being able to cause somebody that much pain or you know, even going so far as to, you know, to murder them is something that is completely foreign to me, as I'd imagine the vast, vast, vast majority of humanity. I mean, there's just something that's hardwired in. And so you're, you're kind of fascinated as to like, what is it that puts these certain individuals on the outside of, of that? What is it that broke the wiring in, in their brain that, you know, would have kept them on that at least, you know, somewhat functional path, you know, where you're not killing people and, you know, hiding body parts and things, and then also not following up with the families and or giving them any peace. And anyway. One of the things you wrote was um, kind of what was my takeaway about revisiting this this case and his victims and uh, the whole nature of how it unfolded that Nancy was in his presence and able to sit across from him and get no new info, uh, which we'll go we'll go jump into that in a second. But uh, the the takeaway for me is it's exactly that it's the the thin line between the norm of society and that primitive bad killing instinct that some people have and that was kind of the that was just the reminder to me is that it's i think that i think it's you'd be surprised to be to and disgusted to realize how not far removed you could be from people that you've walked down the street that are capable or have done or seen these type of things it was just uh it was just a refresher for me as far as that goes and i mean i'm certainly of the mindset that i think 99.999 whatever percent of people are ultimately good or at the very least not bad raging murders like they're not you know malicious in their intents either emotionally you know physically uh Mm -hmm. and one of the frustrating things about the alston case to me and you know i know this happens you know a lot of times where it's you know he didn't plead insanity he didn't you know whatever he just pled guilty. There wasn't a long trial. There wasn't all of this, you know, legal discovery that went into that. There wasn't challenging that and dredging up all of the evidence against him. And so he just kind of got to 
go to jail for, you know, I think like four life sentences end to end plus however many months or years he got for, I mean, improper disposal of a body or something. Uh, And whatever it was that was off in his clockwork is not going to be uncovered. There's, there's no leverage to make, to bring that out into the open and, you know, figure out what it was that was wrong with him or what aspect of society triggered those, you know, disorders in him to manifest. I was going to say, I mean, what leverage would there have been if the death penalty was on the table? Or you either get life or you have death penalty. And if you just give us some more details or da 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 da. Yeah. I think the one silver lining, if I had to guess, I have never been in this position of these families. Uh, God forbid if that ever crosses my path. But the one silver lining would be that it seems to have been a relatively cut and dry, speedy trial. Because unfortunately, when you are dredging up all of these nitty gritty details um, to really pin it on this guy, as it would be deserved, oftentimes the victim's families are sitting there and it's like months and they have to just sit there and wallow and, you know, so at least that was not my impression. It was pretty. Yeah. I mean, I certainly interrogate, you know, some of the, the true crime things. And we talked about this a little bit in the, you know, when we were planning this, you know, months ago when we started doing research and kind of getting together. And also in that, you know, first episode introducing you, you know, I, I don't want to be dredging these things up without any additional good. Like, I don't want to just be lurid for the sake of luridness. Uh, And I don't think that we are, but this is certainly a case where, you know, with Nancy specifically in those two articles that she did, those are ones where, I mean, if you get the opportunity to go and interview someone who is a admitted serial killer and you're the first journalist to do it, like, I mean, you go, yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. And it still is. I mean, I think Nancy did a fantastic job writing that up and not turning it into something that, you know, overly humanized him or turned him into a victim or anything like that. But there's also no new evidence. You know, he didn't confess to any of the other crimes. He didn't, you know, say, you know, where the the bodies had been disposed of, which one of the families had specifically asked her for um, or asked her to, you know, talk to him about because they don't have any closure there. You know, and he doesn't give any of that. And there's no there's no reason for him to still be holding on to that outside of the, you know, what she hypothesized in the article, as well as in the conversation with you, which was that that's the only you know, a bit of, of wealth, I think is how she described it, that, that he still has. And, you know, you just hope that at some point he revisits that idea and decides to un undo at least some of the, the harm that he's caused. Nancy definitely did her due diligence and like her journalistic honor code of you gotta go, you have to go, like we just said, because This guy could have just unleashed Pandora's box and decided, oh, I guess today is the day that I'm going to say all the things that I've held out on saying for a better part of two decades. And um, obviously that didn't happen, which is frustrating. Going off of your point, maybe the best you can hope for is a deathbed confession 
you need that one last ditch effort of making good with whatever God you believe in. And then maybe he would say, I got to get these last few things off my chest. I mean, I, yeah, but that's not, I mean, I, yeah, I, that's, that's seems like that's the, the most rational possible ending to this. If, if it's going to go that way, uh, I mean, based on everything that we've read about him and from Nancy's, you know, covers, it seems less than likely <laughs> that that's how it'll play out in the end. I know, I know. We ended up with dozens and dozens of articles from the archives of the news and record. And, you know, we only touched on a handful of them for the readings and for, you know, any other aspects that we were uh, examining. But there are, you know, some articles that do a better job of, you know, highlighting the victims. And I'll throw some links in the show notes for, for all of those. And the next door that we've got is going to be both much less current and also in some ways maybe as current, which is going to be the story of Monsignor O'Connor in Buffalo, who died in 1966. A case that remains unsolved. And we've got some reporters in Buffalo that have a whole series that's going to be coming out in January that we're going to be talking with. So look forward to that. We'll have more information coming up. And we're excited to tell that story. As excited as he could be about talking about a dead priest. Yes. Yeah. There is new evidence. There's new other aspects that are going to be yeah. fun. I mean, not fun, but it's going to be fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Just, uh, I think some, some good journalist work with those FOIA requests, getting that information that was redacted or sealed all those years ago and brought back up to the surface. Mm-mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a promo right there. Mm-mm-mm. Right? Mm-mm-mm. <laughs> Make sure that you're subscribed to get that when we drop it, the first episode. And for Nat and myself, hope you have a great. <laughs> I want to yeah, say you can definitely happy, happy. You can say happy New Year. First week of January, of course. Yeah. From Nat and myself, happy New Year. have a happy New Year. Don't be the dad seeing me next year. Don't do it. You wanted to.